Hello, everyone. We're here today with uh, Lori Lanou. Uh, and Lori, uh, thank you very much for joining me. It's, uh, I've been looking forward to our session. And uh, Lori and I got together in Quebec and did a, a quick uh, prep session together, which often we don't get a chance to do in person these days. So it felt, it felt like such a luxury. But Lori, I will start with a little bit of uh, asking you a little bit about who Lori Lanou is for those that don't know you. I feel like most of our audience knows you already, but uh, for, for the benefit of everyone. Tell us a little bit about Lori Lenny. Thank you. I'm, I'm super excited to be here. As I told you before, I'm a big fan of the podcast and especially of the name. Um, so so I, it's really, I'm really excited to be here today. Um, so a bit about myself. Um, so I'm a mom. So like many of us, I think that's like one of the top salient thing that we can think about. So I'm a mom, I'm a spouse. Um, I'm an industrial engineer. Um, I'm a partner at McKinsey and Company. I lead our office, and we'll, we'll talk about that in Quebec. Um, and I think I get the thing that gets me excited is ideas, new ideas, big ideas. So that's kind of where I get a lot of I am my energy, and I think I'm known to have a lot. So as you can figure out, I have a lot of ideas. <laughs> That is, I've definitely figured that out pretty quickly, Laurie, and uh, I think that could also be part of the reason why uh, you, uh, of the path to, to leadership uh, within the, the firm as well. I know they're always, those are always competitive roles, so it's, uh, but w I will ask you a little bit more about that uh, as we dive into it. So, Laurie, certainly growing up, we, we have role models that play a role in, in who we become. Who would you say, um, you know, considering the, the ambitious person and with all that you've achieved today, who would you say had the biggest impact on you growing up? I mean, growing up, let's say pre-professional career, um, I would say probably my grandmothers because they were both very not of their era in a way, right? So one of them has a university degree, which was very, uh, quite a, an anomaly really for French Canadian born in the, you know, 1920s. Um, and, um, both of them very hardworking, very, with a lot of opinions and a bit fearless. So I would say that's for sure the pre, um, the pre-professional life. I think the professional life, because, you know, you grow up as a professional as well, I, I believe, I mean, there was clearly some critical mentors, um, that, that, that shaped me. And I think very early on, there was specifically two Eric, when I joined McKinsey that shaped me a lot. And I think what they taught me is kind of courage and the role that it plays in business. So I guess between the fearlessness of like my grandmas and the courage of the two Eric, this is how you, you, you get me in the middle, I guess. And that's, uh, we have the grandmothers to thank. Uh, and and it's, it's interesting because to your point, that would have been unusual uh, in the day. And frankly, the, the percentage of the population overall, yes. regardless of makeup would have been, to go to university at the time would have been extremely unusual. So yeah. that's, uh, it, it's certain, I can definitely appreciate the perspective. Um, and now we seldom become, uh, you know, what we wanted to be when we were little. And sometimes it's hard to imagine a life as a consultant when you're little. But oh, yeah. growing up, what did you want to be? Yeah, so I I think I wanted to be a pharmacist for a period of time, but like kind of later, especially a dentist. And the reason why I did not become a dentist um, was I had a bit of an epiphany sitting on a chair at a dentist's um, appointment, realizing how slow the day was for those people. Um, and kind of linking back to energy, I got out of the appointment in complete panic, thinking, oh my gosh, this cannot be my life for 
you know, the last thir next 30 years. And so uh, in the good foresight, my parents had forced me a little bit to apply to engineering school next to applying to dentist school in uni. And so I came home and, well, it was kind of decided, okay, let's go to engineering school instead, that there's probably something I can do with that, <laughs> that is going to be a little bit more dynamic. So, so uh, it was, uh, it was until the last second, Gary. <laughs> No, and it's it's interesting because you know in consulting you can end up with from very different walks of life, yes. but I've never seen it from a dentistry perspective. So that would have been, <laughs> that would have been a weird. <laughs> you know, that would have been an even bigger anomaly to see it uh, from that angle. And you know, the the how did you like? Did you like? What did you think of those first few steps in the career? Like, is that was that background helpful? Would you recommend that to, to somebody? Because often people will say, "Well, look, if I ever want to be in consulting, I better better get a business background." Yeah. And it's it's uh, it's certainly the advice that is given to a lot of yeah. the the young professionals these days. For sure. I mean, in my opinion, both backgrounds are fantastic, and I'll I'll tell you that because I think the business one is is well known. So I'll tell you the the engineering pitch. The thing you do in engineering is you spend your years learning how to solve problems that are not super well defined and they give you tools to solve them, but it never really gives you the solution. And so I think that the engineering background gives you for sure that comfort and the unknown that you constantly live in as a management consultant. Um, and the other thing that it gives you is um, the very advanced mathematics, which in nowadays, right, in the 2023 onward world, um, we all need to be technically savvy. We all need to be um, comfortable in very complex situations. And so um, I do think in that sense, it was a happy, kind of a happy random mistake, I guess, or a happy, uh, a happy um, thing that I ended up going in engineering. So for me, I don't regret it. And obviously I do it about all oper operations. So I've also, never stayed super far from my industrial engineering uh, origin. Well, and what's interesting is uh, my undergrad was in biochemistry. So a little not dissimilar to you, I find when you're making business decisions, et cetera, despite having technology, it's it's sometimes very helpful to be able to do quick math and sort of assessments around, especially when you're making decisions and uh, the you, you're able to say, okay, this logical makes sense. I know approximately what this thing is supposed to lead to, et cetera. So I could see a lot of those parallels playing out. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And so the the just thinking a little bit about uh, your your upbringing, were you always ambitious in terms of uh, leadership, et cetera? Was that something that manifested early on? Or was this something that was more something that uh, appeared more later in life? No, I think it would be fair to say that I always kind of had this appetite to lead. I think it it materialized more probably in my strong identity to be part of institutions or group that I was kind of affiliated to. So whether it was sport or it was like in school and like school government, right, which is kind of a place where you can typically... Um, test a little bit your leadership skill earlier on in your life. And I, I think that leadership at the intersection of being a citizen for me is a very strong and powerful drive I have. And therefore, whether it is my role with it, like rowing within the firm or gr 
growing as a business person, as part of a community where we have societal issues we're trying to progress. I mean, those this drive, I feel like always had the need to to be part of something, right? To, to lead and be part of something. I cannot be passive, right? When I, I look at, at, at situations, at ideas, at, at organizations. And I didn't know that part, Laurie, but I, if I were a betting man, I was like, I have a feeling from student government <laughs> or from things early on. Laurie had been doing this. Uh, all, this isn't something that just uh, later on was like, you know what, I think I could do this. It's the, that there was a confidence built up uh, pretty quickly. Thanks. Um, so on on that, uh, you know, we talk a little bit about uh, work becomes such a, a big component of our of our lives. Yeah. But uh, what keeps you busy aside from work? Obviously, you're a mom, you're a partner, um, but it's and, and things that you're passionate about outside of work. I mean, for me, I will take work and community work kind of all in the same bucket. Right. I, I think the my mental health and what keeps me busy is um, the alpine ski season. So that has been um, always the place where I'm happy, where I'm centered. Um, like my spouse, sometimes kids, there's like the, the before the ski season, there's the ski season, then the just after the ski season to start planning the next one, right? So for me, that's always been a big part because I, I think it's like a fantastic way to bring sport, mental health, families and friends kind of all in one beautiful package. So, so it's always been very... Um, very close to my heart. So I'm, I'm known to have like my ski underwear in like business wear on Fridays, just like the second the season starts. So I'm, I'm, I, it keeps me quite, quite balanced, I think, overall. So it keeps me busy, but balanced, I guess it's the perfect, uh, the perfect equilibrium. And, and that makes perfect sense. We all need to find some sort of balance. And uh, the, I think a little bit of physical activity is critical. Uh, and we find that with, you know, almost consistently on the podcast, uh, when we've uh, interviewed uh, senior leaders, it becomes one of those items where it's like, look, we all have an outlet and often with a physical attribute to it, because how else do you disengage and give your body an energy boost? Yeah. And it's, it's everyone's responsibility a little bit to find this, right? Your, your employer, your colleague cannot find that for yourself. You need to discover what it is. I think for many of us, it's sport, um, but I'm sure there's an alternative to this that is not so intense and active probably. I mean, some of our colleagues in business are like 4 a.m. clubs, people that do Ironman on weekend. I'm like, I'm not that intense, but you know, there's, I think sport is, is something that it's our responsibility to bring in as leaders. Cause if you don't, if you're not at your best physically and mentally, I mean, you cannot lead efficiently, right? That's just the way it is. I'm not that intense uh, either, Lori, but I have a lot of respect for those people. The, the, you know, triathlon, Ironman. It's, Read the I, books, like, I, admire them. That's yeah. where I am. Lori, <laughs> uh, a bit of an unusual question uh, for a podcast, but what is your favorite quote? And then yes. why? To be, yes. If you can think of, of one on top of your head. I mean, we are on firing on all syllables, so it makes a lot of sense to ask the question. Um, so I have one that I use a lot, which is um, in life, there are small, medium and big, big, large problems. And when you look at your life, most of us have only small problem and many of our problems don't even qualify sometimes as small problem. So I use that a lot to just remind myself how lucky I am. And like whenever I get stressed or something, I'm like, wait a minute, this is not 
really a problem. This is barely an obstacle, right? Um, and I think that is another great reminder for me of, okay, if I don't have large problems and medium problems, what's my role in helping others that have these? And what is my role in helping them? So I, I use it a lot. Um, and people around me are probably hearing me saying it, but um, I think it's quite important to keep a perspective on life. No, and that's very important, Laurie, because uh, in leadership, we're inundated with issues. But I mean, and often we're, people come to us with issues because it's part of our job yeah. is to, to help yes. with resolutions or, or direction. Uh, so that type of thinking is critical uh, just for triaging and for prioritizing. Otherwise, you know, it can seem overwhelming, but for things that truly are not that complex or that in, in the, from an impact perspective, it's certainly nowhere near existential crisis yeah. type uh, issue. Yeah. Um, and Laurie, I know there will be a lot of people in the, uh, listening that will be curious around your career path. What, what would you say are some of the pivotal moments that helped shape your career? Mm -hmm. So we already spoke a little bit about that dentist one that I can skip. So I guess the first step is, you know, choosing engineering. Don't be a dentist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Don't go into dentistry if you want to be management consultant. That's a, it's a tougher, it's a tougher route. Uh, I'm sure it's feasible. Really, um, a really good profession, but maybe not for <laughs> if you're going to management. Exactly. Um, so I mean, probably three. Um, so of course there was the first decision because it, it's it might not seem like so, but to go from a pure engineering school into management consultant is a bit of a pivot. And so that was for sure one, one critical moment in decision-making that clearly accelerated my career open to a lot of opportunities. So that's, that's one, um, I'll circle back to it, but then I'll, I'll the second part, which is you fast track a couple of years, a few more than a couple of years later, um, is also making the deliberate decision to become an equity partner and kind of starting to think about that. Um, which is a pretty big hurdle, right? As you say, in professional services, not just at McKinsey or in consulting, right? There, it is a big step in one's career to decide to go for such um, such a promotion. And so that was clearly a decisive moment. And of course, more recently, the designation as managing partner of, of a location, um, you know, completely different than the kind of the randomness, I guess, from earlier in my career, but also also a big step. So if I unpack a little bit each of them, so the, the going into management consulting, a little bit typical to the Lori of those days that was confused about her own university application, that was a little bit random. And in engineering school, we're not as well aware, I would say, of management consulting or consulting in general. It's a little bit more of a vague concept. So for me, it was very random where I received direct mail um, at my student apartment. So yes, these things are still existed at that point. Um, uh, to invite me to the info session of McKinsey. And so I knew nothing of, of McKinsey or what it was, but my roommates were in accounting at business school. And so they told me, oh my gosh, if you're invited to this, you should go. So I literally had no clue what I was walking into. And then in the info session, I took away two things. People were working on cool, exciting things, which again, going back to, I get excited about ideas. So I was like, oh, this is great. Like big problem seems complicated. So it got me very intrigued. And the second thing is I really liked the vibe of the people or the personality of the people that were there at the info session. So I literally made my decision on, 
this seems kind of the question seems exciting and the people seem nice to work with. So again, a little bit more randomness, a little bit of like the early days career lorry, which to be honest, translated in my early days at McKinsey as well, where we were just kind of getting excited by one thing and another thing. And I was kind of hopping around the world on different topics. And then later on, obviously, you need to start to be smart a little bit about your career and about building expertise. And so at some point when I got tenure enough where people were starting to talk to me, including to Eric from the beginning of like, would you want to become a partner? Or how would that look like? I think in that moment, I was clear on what I knew, what I knew the expertise I was building. I loved serving client. I love the concept of service and of the work we were doing, the rigor in it. So that I knew I loved the place. I knew that in becoming a partner with me, I would get access to even more of what I was doing today. But I think I had to get a bit of the push of some of the mentors around me to trust myself that I could even do it. And this was something worthwhile trying, which of course I'm very happy today that they did do this push um, and maybe believed in me like five minutes before I believed in myself so that I kind of you know, went, went forward with it. And then most recently when it was the, the position for managing partner, we knew was gonna be up for change. I think this is a very different evolution because then I knew it was a little bit early for me to be able to took the role, but I went for it anyway. And I kind of pitched the what would work and what are the risks of, of taking me as a, as a potential candidate into the role. And so you can see the level of confidence kind of grows and a little bit of planning, but it's a little bit more thoughtful as you go. So very happy. I mean, I'm also lucky, right? It all worked out. Um, but these are clearly some important milestones. So sometimes they come to you, sometimes you need to make them, you know, and, uh, and architect a little bit more. And that's, that's a key takeaway, Laurie. Sometimes they come to you, but sometimes you also make them and yeah. it's, uh, grab the opportunities by the horns, which yeah. is exactly what you did. Um, and then consulting with some people to, to for some of the key learnings around, uh, you know, what it takes to get something done, because yeah. it's hard sometimes when you're, when you're moving into leadership, can seem scary and it can yeah. seem like what well, I have never done this to this extent, but by that definition, no one would ever no, go into it. leadership because, <laughs> right? So that's it. Uh, so uh, you know, the at this point, uh, Laurie, there, I'm sure there's been some learnings uh, being the managing partner for Quebec. What are some of the things that um, some key learnings you have found um, that that you could share because. People, you know, the whether it's peers at other organizations, uh, whether it is more, uh, junior or more senior uh, colleagues out there, want to really learn. Here's here are some takeaways in a distilled fashion that uh, somebody in your in your role, which you know you're you're helping large organizations transform themselves. So sometimes there's a lot of pressure on on, on you uh, with your own uh, within your own office and organization. Yes, no, absolutely. I mean, it's true. I mean, in our and I think this is true of all professional services, right? But when you're the managing partner, you live kind of two lives because you have your own client service world and you have kind of leading internally the scope that you're given or the location that you're given. So obviously sometimes it feels a little bit like, wow, I feel like I have a personality disorder or, or, or something like that. But um, I think some of the lessons that I that I got from the last, you know, I'm almost at, at, at my kind of rounding up my first year now. First is just like every other step before, you need to have mentors or coaches in some way. And I think that 
the more you progress, you probably want to look for individuals that are outside also of your own organization, right? So I've gotten a lot of value out of interactions from other leaders of like law firms, as an example, which are ex-managing partner and how did they reconcile this? So I think like finding peers in the industry or outside of industry that can help you um, make your mind and challenge you and your mental model, I think is really essential. The second part, which applies, I think, in a many, many contexts is, is have a strong team and, and kind of always thrive to build a strong team. And so this can be either having the right people in the right role, but also just creating the right dynamic where, you know, I talked about courage. Courage is a big deal for me in the way I think we need to lead um, always as leader. We need to lead as advisor, right? If you're not being courageous, you're not giving the right recommendations. It's almost impossible that you are. And so internally for me, courage me meant being a good role model, being vulnerable when I needed to, because that that gives trust and people know that you're your full self. And therefore, if you are your full self, they will be their full self. And suddenly you're in a trusted environment and things could just go faster and better and you perform, right? So, so that's a few of the lessons for sure. So the mentors, the coaches, the people that are going to help you reflect and then how do you work as a team and how do you get the right environment for folks to be at their best and for me it starts with courage and trust but for others it might start elsewhere and it is a tough balancing act like it's in professional services especially when you're expected to also have uh, practice and and, uh, you know it it really is two very different ways of thinking and and uh, two very different hats so i i completely appreciate the challenges that come with it uh, and Laurie, what did you say, you know, from having made this step in your career, what did you say to other women that are considering this? And, and this could well apply to, 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 to anyone, but certainly, um, you know, this is uh, more women are, are making this uh, steps to leadership than ever before. And that's great. Uh, but there are still many of them that may, may second guess themselves, yeah. et cetera. So what would you say? What, what words of advice yeah. would you have? No, absolutely. I think like for me, there was in this process to twofold is to the point. I think I would I I did have the up myself out syndrome for sure. Um, And and I had to work on that. And I and and I got there after the years of coaching and after probably giving myself a little bit more the license to say, no, I think I can do this role just like anybody else. And kind of, you know, starting from a internal motivation of like, you can probably make it work and you won't know until you're there. So just start by trying. If you think you can make it, just be there and figuring out after how you're going to make it all work together. So that would be my, my kind of my first thing. Um, and the second thing is I think sometime, you know, we're all, I guess we have a little bit this chip or this concern of like, well, am I going to get it because I'm female or because of like diversity? And so I think just give yourself the license to say exactly the word that you want to say. So in my interview, I literally said, if you want to give it to me because I'm female, do not. It will show in the way that you guys are treating me at the table. So just don't, if that's what you want to do. And then all my mentors like, why did you say that? For sure, you will lose the position. I was like, well, I felt like I needed to say it in the interview. Else I would have like felt like an imposter. Now that I said it, poof, I feel I have the agency to be completely myself if I have the role, which was the case. So... I think it's a little bit like find your biases, your internal biases, and the mechanism to free yourselves from it. So, 
Yeah, and and you know that, that transparency sometimes is it's always to say, look, I'm uh, I'm very happy to compete under any circumstances, not strictly for a quota. So it's exactly. uh, I think pointing it out gives you that freedom to say, yeah. hey, it's I made it clear that I want it for the right. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so it's it's a really it's a really good uh, piece of advice and and it's uh, I, but I can also appreciate the mentors being yeah like, the mentors Whoa. were really not appreciative of my strategy here but you see I trusted myself with it and I'm happy I did. <laughs> when having seen you in, in a variety of contexts, Laurie, it would have been uh, I you know I would have said no it's she's completely <laughs> she she completely whether you said that or not but the issue is. Uh, sometimes uh, the you know it's it's our own struggle within ourselves yeah. that is an impact correct i think we spin on it internally way more than others do so just mechanism to free yourself this is the way to go but I, I you know by the same token i find this in leadership a lot that the the really good leaders tend to be tough, much tougher on themselves than they are on others uh, and that means as a result you're better leaders you're 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 uh, you actually push yourself uh, to become uh, to, to to really challenge uh, and push your boundaries that otherwise may not happen if you don't think that way. Yeah, I, I think as leaders, you cannot expect others to set bars on you, to set targets on you, right? It's your it's your role to give yourselves personal goals, to give yourself goals for your organization. So indeed, I think that's probably a trade that that is quite important because you cannot look for others to set that for you. You need to be quite self-driven. I'm going to pivot a little bit, uh, Laurie, because uh, I want to get back to, to some of the some of the pieces that uh, you know, the, in terms of advice, etc. Mm-hmm. But you being the, the dichotomy of your position, where you actually have to run the run the office as well as uh, uh, worry about uh, the client work. What are some trends you're seeing with your clients um, yeah. overall? Things that uh, whether it's similar challenge, whether it's uh, solutions that they're implementing that are sort of that, that tends to, yeah. to share his general advice. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I mean, we're, so we're recording this in September 23, right? Things things move um, rapidly. I mean, what we've seen is that clearly, I mean, across most of like what I would call the advanced industries and the, those that are kind of sophisticated um, uh, and, and relevant, at least to the East Coast of North America, what we've seen is that there's the pivot that was quite um, clear between kind of the last segment of, of 22 to the new year, right? Where a lot of the trends that we knew were materializing around cost pressure and global tension, global supply chain issues, talent shortages. I think there was a click of everybody that was still in denial kind of joined the pack of, no, no, this is, this is happening. And these, these are things we'll need to address. We cannot just hold our breath and, and wait for them to pass. And so I think as we now are kind of well into 23, what we're seeing is that the world of complexity we were expecting, the world of, um, you know, you need to, to, you have many battles on many fronts um, as an organization, whether they are internal or external, is, is clearly materialized. And so what are people doing? They are working to reshift a little bit some of their strategic initiative, right? What was expected last year, very oriented on growth and on um, kind of the, the, how am I gonna absorb more of the, my cause by just growing and kind of being able to just flex that muscle. People are reverting to, okay, how do, how do we become more efficient? 
how do we become more productive, more resilient as organization? And how do we tackle the new challenges of the day, which is, you know, we're now all clear, or most of us are clear that sustainability is a major challenge, that we have resilience issue across our industry, which sometimes, depending on the industry, has massive impact, right? If you're delivering bubble gum, it's fine, you know, that you have a bit of a shortage. But if you're delivering critical medicine, a little bit more of an issue, right? So so how are these things going to reconcile? So I think a lot of people are regearing their strategic um, priorities along productivity, resilience. Um, and of course, the big lever across many of these is digital analytics, AI, and kind of automating away probably some of the problems we're having. No, and I can appreciate that. Uh, and Laurie, along those lines, many organizations uh, are often find themselves in a situation of, look, efficiencies are always good to find. This is certainly the perfect time for it. But, you know, we never know when we come out of this uh, and sort of go back to, to an upswing. How do you, in your opinion, how, do you, how does an organization stay prepared for growth while still, uh, you know, sort of trying to make sure they are keeping the engine running during periods of uncertainty? Yeah. It's funny you say this. Like, what I observe is that, People can gear for growth pretty rapidly because worst case is you scale for growth in an inefficient way, right? That's kind of the the worst case scenario is you you throw people at the problem and you throw more external support at the problem. I think gearing up for a pressure cycle or a shrink cycle or a flat cycle, that's way more difficult. And so, so I think that the, the obsession for growth that we all have, I have it too, right? We all have it. Um, I think we need to remember that every win you make in the other cycle typically helps you for the growth cycle. So, so I, I see you laughing, Gary. So I think you've, you, you agree with me to a certain extent, right? <laughs> no, it, it's, really, it's really good advice because if we learn anything from 2020 till last year is that uh, many organizations did grow inefficiently. I mean, you saw a lot of them scaling yeah. back and you, know, you saw that in the tech sector, et cetera. And it's like, so now they're all like, no, no, we must do this efficiently. Yes. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah. so it's actually, you know, it, it, and if, if, if it can be distilled as a takeaway is to anybody listening, it's like, look, yes, certainly don't, doesn't mean you should name for growth, but it, uh, efficient growth can be very important, yeah. including to the bottom line as well, right? right. Because I, you know, the, you can have a business that can make double the revenue, but without any profitability, it's not uh, it's not as critical uh, as the profit business. So. Absolutely, yeah. But it is you know you encounter this a lot right now because people are changing mindsets yes. and uh, change is not easy. No, change is not easy, especially in a world where we have so much complexity, right? Because typically, I mean, change is never easy. We have plenty of research on this. It is very difficult. But change is really not easy when you're trying to find certainties around you that simply not exist, right? I think one of the disease that I'm seeing right now is we're trying to figure out to what other crisis does this one looks like, right? Helpful, like kind of afternoon tea conversation, less helpful boardroom conversation, right? Focus on what you control, what you don't, what are the, what are the levers at hand, and understand the complexities and how they're impacting you personally or impact your stakeholders. But I think that we're, we're, we're all trying to compare and find kind of reassurance, but the truth is 
this one looks really, really different. Um, and, and it's bringing many, many components that most of a C-suite is not seeing um, in their own lifetime as a leader. So kind of freeing ourselves from, does, some, does someone have seen this before type question um, is helpful nowadays. But then again, uh, reverting back to your original point, because it was a great piece of advice, it's like focus on your efficiency because you will never struggle. Yeah. You can never go wrong doing that. That's right? it. so it's, don't try to find as much what this looks like and just focus more on becoming more efficient because it will yeah. always help. Yeah. And it's, you know, I'll tell you a funny story, Laurie, very anecdotally. Uh, I remember uh, uh, sort of offering translation service to the oil and gas uh, industry when it was doing really, really well. And they were like, no, we're fine. Like, because, <laughs> you know, they were just trying to to just worry about growth at the time, et cetera. And then when there was sort of a slowdown in the industry, all of a sudden everyone wanted to chat with us. And it was because everyone was looking for efficiencies. And um, I think these days and sort of in, in the new economy that we're in, uh, feel like we should always be looking for efficiencies consistently. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Yeah, I've, I've had a bit of a deja vu on the conversation you're just like. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Laurie, I'll pivot back to, to your personal story. Um, you did your MBA at Oxford, and mm -hmm. uh, we added a little bit about uh, your time in England, and you really enjoyed that time. Yeah. Uh, so, would you, you know, having come from an engineering degree, uh, I, I'm willing to bet money because I sort of had a similar path from coming out of an undergrad in science and saying, I don't have any formal business training. I could certainly use some, <laughs> uh, but what was your experience and what, what, uh, what did you say, what would you, would you recommend that to, to other people that may be considering that path? Yeah. I mean, I don't think I've ever met someone that's done an MBA that's like mm, debatable if this was useful or fun, right? So I think we all come like as huge promoters of the, our own um, our own MBAs and our own experience. But for sure, to your point, as an engineer was a great compliment for me in terms of, you know, despite coming from management consultant, it felt that it really broadened my horizon on careers, what is possible, um, what are others doing? What does it really mean to do this job versus another one, right? So I think I've, I've learned a lot. And it was a really big year. And I think this is a bit specific to, to the University of Oxford, but it was a big year of like curiosity and a bit of a like brain candy in itself to be there, which is at the conferences and the offering that is available on campus. So go again, back to I get excited about ideas. I get excited about intellectual discussion. So, so that was clearly a growing moment for me i think that that was the click in my career that in my time at oxford was oxford has a very strong societal angle to the to the mba and so up to that point in my career i had been quite focused more on the core of the job like the core of serving clients the core of building expertise and it was really when i came back from from business school that i thought okay wait a minute what are you going to do and what's going to be your legacy? And what are you going to do with the leadership and the position and the access you have? Which led a little bit also to defining what I'm trying to build with, with my role in the office now and in our role in the city, right? Which, which Gary, you and I spoke about before. And so I think that was a nice, a nice click. And, and for, for sure, I would recommend for people to go. I think the key is really pick an MBA that's going to fit what you are trying to. It's like, don't do this blindly. 
pick an MBA. They all have different flavors, different purpose, different spin on the, on, on the topic they will bring forward. So pick an MBA that will really help you leap forward to your career aspiration or help you at least clarify them. And then worst case, go to Oxford because, you know, it's the best place in the world. But, um, but <laughs> I think as I said, I mean, I'm not neutral. I'm fully biased here. <laughs> No, I mean, look, as a brand, no one, it's hard for anyone to argue with the uh, Oxford's brand. So that's, uh, I, I was, uh, I had to go to England for a wedding in August and uh, spent an afternoon in Oxford. It's a beautiful place as well, in addition to, to a great education. Yes, it is. It's quite, it's quite idyllic. So, uh, Laurie, I know you touched on this about community involvement and what your legacy is. Tell us a little bit about what you're currently involved in and, and also what you aspire to, to keep doing more of, because certainly when you're balancing things, you can't do everything you may want to do, uh, but it's yeah. just sort of what you're doing currently, what you're thinking about long-term. Yeah, so the, so I mean, as an office, we've historically had a pretty big footprint, um, especially in around either Quebec or the, the city of Montreal. So we had done pretty like significant work on school dropout maybe 10 years ago when I joined that as something that had inspired me a lot as a colleague. And so this was something that, as I said, between the Oxford journey, the kind of what I am as a leader and what was important to me, this was something that I wanted to be front and center in my tenure in the office. And um, I had been over the last um, couple of years quite close to United Way or Centraide in French uh, here in the city, and um, it was a good timing because um, for me, poverty, social inclusion is really critical, and I see it as the foundation to having a safe city. It's what I think, you know, if we know that everybody is taken care of, we can all sleep at night, you know, peacefully. If not, we have responsibility as citizens to do something about it. Um, and Sandhide is the expert on poverty and on social inclusion, and they have a track record that is impressive. So for me, as like someone that likes rigors and facts and, and expertise, right, they're, they're kind of the perfect foundation um, to be associated with. And so last year, we started a big journey on one of the biggest root causes that Centred has identified uh, for our city, which was our subsidized housing shortage and the housing shortages as a whole and what are, were the ripple effect on society. And so I had really the honor to be, uh, to be leaning the charge on some of the research that Centre needed to do their role as the convener and the, the mechanism to, to put all the right people at the table. And so contributing on that fact base, I think is going to be one of the most exciting thing that I, I got to do in my career thus far. And the work continues, right? We, we've been partnered with, we've partnered with them for almost 12, 13 years, right? This, we've done two previous pro bonos, pro bonos for them on their strategic planning where now we did this one on, on, on housing and there's there's more to come. And so I think finding these non-for-profit that are really shaping the city and, and moving them forward or, or shaping the province is something that I'm quite excited about. Lori, uh, um, uh, United Way is close to my heart. It was one of the first few boards I, uh, I was on. And uh, for the same reasons, I always found it so valuable to the respective yeah. community. So very excited to hear uh, your passion about it. Thank you. Um, on that note, Lori, I wanted to ask you a little bit. There's a lot of, I hear this from professionals, business people saying, you know what, I'm so busy doing what I'm doing. I, I don't know that I have time to give back. And I'm, I have my thoughts on that, uh, of course, but I just, what would you say to those people? Yeah. 
I, I personally think it's really a silly argument. Um, I think we all have time to give back. Um, and, you know, if you look at your calendar, if you're, I, I have a lot, I'm, I'm very obsessive about time in general, because obviously if you want to make the family, the ski, you know, and it's really tough to write an email in a chairlift, right? And when it's minus 20, you can, if you remove that mitten, you like, you never, it never comes back the way it was before you remove the mitten, right? So you need to be like really obsessive a little bit about how you're spending your time. And if you apply the same focus you're giving to sport or you're giving to your family and you just carve out the right amount, the perfect amount of hours in the week to, to give back, you have those hours. And, and personally, those marginal hours, they give me so much energy. They give me so much energy. They don't feel like work. They just feel like something I almost do for myself, right? It is like kind of the, the thing that get, gives you the energy to do the other thing that maybe drain you a little bit more, like at least for me, it's like a budget as an example, right? So if I've done one hour of United Way, I can probably push through one hour of budget conversation, right? So, so that I think it's a little bit like, if you really look at it, you have space in your calendar. And the question is, if you're a leader, you're talented, you have access or specific knowledge, or you have resources that can help, I think it's like almost malpractice not to, to contribute, right, to, to, to your society or, or to your organization or to whatever you're affiliated to. So it's very personal, but I think that especially in professional services, we have a special skill set and all of us have a bit of a yeah, an obligation to serve one way or another. I mean, if you don't have time, because it happens. I mean, when I was, when my son was like six months old, I was like, I probably did not have a lot of time, right? But in those moments, it's okay. You don't need to give all the time that you, that you, that you have extra, right? You also need to sleep at some point, but keep the moments, keep a moment in your journey where you are going to give back, right? So, so no, but if you have the time, I think it's, it's, it, it is an imperative. One has to contribute. Oh, and I think it's a great way to think of it, Laura, is that it's it's um, uh, it's something incumbent upon all of us uh, to, to to give back to our communities in whatever way we can and as yeah. much as we can. But knowing that much like uh, the physical activity gives us energy yeah. and and we've heard on this podcast before, frankly, it also opens up networks, et cetera, yes. that sometimes you don't get a chance to meet strip in your professional context. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it creates bridges that you would never maybe even have thought about. So absolutely. Uh, Laurie, I'm going to pivot uh, one last time, and this goes to a part of uh, a part of our uh, podcast that we call the Rapid Fire Questions. Ooh, okay, uh, I'm ready. So, no pressure on this one. It's just whatever comes to mind. Okay. It's just a fun activity uh, that we do at the, as a wrap up. So, uh, what is your favorite word? Honestly, I use it all the time. Like it's my, it's like my punctuation and also like people know around me if I say honestly, it's like I'm watch out for what's coming. So honestly. Um, what word do you hate? Okay. Maybe. Maybe. This, oh, it's like, yes, no. Like, yes. Under what condition? Like, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. You're preaching to the convert. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, what word do you have a hard time pronouncing, if any? Okay, yes. And this is actually quite famous. There's some people are going to laugh. So, and I'm going to struggle right now. So That's okay. when you want to speak about hierarchy, you want to say something is hierarchical? Hier hier hierarchical? 
I struggle too. So. It's, it's lost on me for years. I just, I should probably have a badge or something to like remind me, but it's impossible. <laughs> Uh, no, but that's, you know, the, the, this is the, I think part of it is, is also being multilingual, right? Yes, Which is, uh, exactly. Provide other the French uh, gets in the way. That, that's the word where the French just gets in the way. <laughs> and, but to be honest, I think I wouldn't be surprised if somebody was uh, born and raised Anglophone that they may still have that limitation. It's not an easy word. You're making me feel better. Thank you. <laughs> I certainly struggle with it. Uh, what is your favorite word in another language? Mm. Very nice. Um, so the the Germans, the German have genau, which is like kind of a word they use in, in language to say like, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what what, he, what I mean, or I fully agree. Uh, the Dutch have precise, I think is the way they pronounce it, which is also very nice. Um, I don't find in French we have the same like we, like we have very long words to express the same thing, not the like short punctuations. So I, I like those words. No, it's uh, and this is, I think, one thing English has done is borrowed a lot from other languages. Yes. <laughs> so, and just with a bit of an English accent to it, next thing you know. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and how many languages do you speak, Laurie? So my native language is French. Um, I learned English very early in life, like many Montrealers, right? We're kind of, I guess, brought up with both and and I guess both become second languages somehow from, from the eyes of the world. So, so French, English, and um, I've been learning German for a few years, so I'm, I'm still shy, but I'm, I'm learning. Um, and I, and I, I can understand a lot of Dutch because my spouse is, is from there. And so he speaks to my son in, in Dutch. So now I'm, I'm, silently very dangerous in my listening skills but i've and i'm not saying anything you know it's kind of my secret power i'm i, I don't want him and my son to plot against me or something so so don't tell don't, don't tell them about the podcast don't tell them about the we won't tell them we'll, we'll keep it a secret uh, until they google your name and then yeah that's it um and what's one word uh to describe yourself with or by Mm, I have to go with energetic. I would agree. Yeah, <laughs> the, 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 in, in the conversations we've had together in the, the few times we've gone together, I think that's it's abundantly clear and comes through. So Thanks. Uh, no, and, and Laurie, the, we, we'd like to end with a, a few fun questions like that because it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a cool way to get to know our audience uh, and, and our, our speakers a bit better in the podcast. Uh, but I really appreciate your time. I think this has been uh, very informative. And I had many, many more questions I wanted to ask you. But that, uh, you know, if, if we if we had three hours, uh, the which I know when, when you're on the consulting side would have been very expensive. So <laughs> this, this this has been uh, great. And I know that a lot, uh, a lot of our audience will get a lot out of it. So thank you again for making the time to join me today. Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. Thank you.